A brief word about one of our sponsors. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, environment and the arts. Now the broad range of topics means there's something in the Economist for everyone. I subscribe. It's great to keep up with what's going on back in my homeland at the moment. It's all about Brexit and I can get up to speed on daily developments, but also it has really interesting pieces relevant to stories I'm working on as a journalist or which matter to me here in the US. They often ask deeper questions like a recent piece I read that looked at the risks of Donald Trump boosting America's alliance with Saudi Arabia after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In short, The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free copy now. For your free print copy of The Economist, listeners to Dead Man Talking can text MAN, that's M-A-N, to 78070. That's text MAN to 78070 to get your free print copy of The Economist. Did you ever think you would get caught? I never planned to get caught. I was thinking that I eventually probably could have snitched me out or whatever. But uh, would you have stopped killing? Or would, huh? you have, would you have carried on killing and killing? I went to my family. Those, those, those are the ones that uh, turned, 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 turned me in. But would you, if they hadn't, if you had still been in Mexico, would you still have killed and killed and killed and killed? I was at the end of the rope in the sense I, that I was seeing it. Would you have stopped though? Or would you have carried on killing? No. C- carried on? No. You wouldn't have carried on? Stop it. In the episode before the Holly Dunn interview, I told you about a murder case in Georgia in which two people had been freed following a Resendez confession. The Daryl Collar Hacko case was eerily similar. But I also heard a rumour from Diamantina's trial attorney. He told me that a preacher had visited Resendez in prison and told him to take the flag for Daryl's murder because he had nothing to lose. My quest to find out whether Resendez was lying to me goes on as does the search for answers in the potential innocence of Diamantina and Andres. How can specific details of Daryl's murder help me with this? And do other murderous acts by Angel Resendez bear similarities to this one? Today we're going to meet a couple of people who knew Resendez to try to answer these questions. From DMT Media and Audioboom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. Before we get on with the story, a quick mention of our Facebook group. There have been a number of you that have got in touch with us and not only have you got interesting things to say, but there have been a few times when it's actually moved the story along as well. So don't forget to go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash dead man talking and follow us on there. 
Les Ribnick was one of Resendez's appeals attorneys, and I travelled to his home in Houston to meet him. Hey, Les. How's it going? How are you? Great to meet you. Yeah, finally. I get to see you after all these, uh, all these years. I read about, read about you. I've wanted to speak to Les for a long while. He got to know Resendez pretty well, and I figured that he'd be able to shed some light on my investigation. And Les told me in the, the run-up to the interview, we spoke on the phone and we spoke by email, that he suffered from Parkinson's disease, and he has done for about 12 years. And it affects the way he talks and the way he moves. But he really, really wanted to talk to me about the case, and he very kindly asked me to go and visit him at his home in Houston. Well, it's been a long time. As I told you before, I've got Parkinson's disease. It affects my emotions. It affects my f- fatigue, my mouth. And it's just been a lot of years. When I first came across your name, it was in a story by Mark Babinek from the Associated Press. Quote was something like, like, let my guy die another day because he might have information about other murders that will die with him once he, once he goes. And that has stuck with me. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because, you know, that is essentially what this entire investigation that I'm doing is about. And I look at these pictures, some things come back to me. So what are we looking at? This is the victim's back of his head where he was bludgeoned. I'm looking at a picture of Daryl Colahaco. This is the room in the house where his body was located. That's his body here on the carpet by the fireplace. Yeah. The photograph has been taken from above. We sat down in Les's front room and he opened up the Resendez case file. And of course, not only does he have all the paperwork from when he represented Resendez, but in the intervening years, he's also amassed quite a lot of photographs from the Colahaco crime scene because even though that didn't factor into his defence of Resendez back in when he was appealing his sentence, since then he was made aware that Resendez could have been responsible for Daryl's murder too. I mean, it's brutal. That's not something that happened, you know, with one or two strikes. This is, a, this is the sort of crime that the person just didn't stop. I mean, they just kept on presumably bludgeoning him even when he, he was dead. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. It's brutal. Yes, it is. There are original murders. We carried on looking at the photographs and it was strange after reading so much about the murder and, and speaking to Diamantina to finally see the crime scene. The den, what I call the den, is the face, his left shoulder, upper left arm. We can see his legs. There's no damage here. All the bludgeoning with the whatever object it was was to his upper, just his head really. I mean, it's incredibly violent. He's reaching out. There's a phone here. Do you think that he was trying to call somebody? He may have. Mm. He may have. I don't know for sure. Detective said that he was killed where he was found, correct? Yes. And so I'm looking at a, a quite a busy living room. I'm just going to describe it. So there's wood-paneled walls, and he was found on the floor on a rug uh, near the fireplace. It's like a marble fireplace, and there's statuettes on the top of the fireplace, a red sofa, lots of pictures on the wall. What was that about? Pictures on the wall. Oh, right. That plays into what Resendez said. Yes. He, he described the scene. He made a description 
that made no sense to me mm. until I saw the picture on the wall. You'll recall that in addition to telling me about the murder of Daryl Kolahako, Resendiz had also given journalist Mark Babinek specific details about the crime scene. Well, he also told Les that he killed Daryl too. So he told you there was a picture on the wall of... The Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Of course, the Santa Maria, the Nina and the Pinta are the ships that Columbus sailed to the West Indies in 1492. He gave me physical description of the scene. He gave me information that only somebody who had been there would, would know. Well, when I got up this morning and started driving to Les's house in Houston, I didn't know that he was going to tell me that Resendiz had confessed to him about murdering Daryl Colahaco too. There were some more pictures here. I don't think we've seen these ones yet. Upstairs. This one, he talked about a tank, the water tank. goes up about three stories. Mark Babinet mentioned that as well. Resendiz had told him about the water tank. I mean, you stand in front of the house, you can't see it, but you stand between... You look out the alleyway between the, the two houses, you see clearly it's a water tank. Mm. You describe the uh, swimming pool. These corners are scalloped. He mm. tried to describe it, but it didn't make any sense to me until I saw, saw it for myself. Mm. And there was a gate to the pool that separated the pool from the rest of the patio. And when I saw that gate, it fell into place. Mm. He talked about a balcony. There's a balcony up there, but it's not a weight-bearing one. It's, it's for decorative purposes more than anything. He talked about a balcony over the pool, and this is what he meant. And you cannot see that from the street. Water tank, swimming pool, balcony, these were all things Resendiz had described and which I could now see very clearly in the photographs. Mark Babinek had already told me that he'd confirmed these things when he'd visited the crime scene, but it was extraordinary to finally see this with my own eyes. Les then started telling me what Resendiz had told him about murdering Daryl. Well, the story went that he met his victim at City Park over on the east side of town called Hako. Allegedly said that he would help Mr. Resendiz find work. Mm. And Resendiz went with him. Mm. Got to the house, went inside, called Hako, went upstairs, got changed, and came out in these shorts that you see him in the pictures wearing. And he made a homosexual overture according to Resendez, and Resendez had no tolerance for homosexuals. And Resendez left the house, came back later with a steel pipe, came into the house and attacked Kalahako, bludgeoning him to death. Her husband picked me up yep. in Magnolias. Okay. There was to go to work. Okay. Where is Magnolias? In right, right next to downtown. Okay. In where? Which? Houston. In Houston? Okay. 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 And uh, her uh, Diamantina and her boyfriend got put in put in life in prison because of what I did. So the story Resendiz told Les about how Daryl picked him up and he took him back and he made a pass at him and then killed him was exactly the same story he told me. We continued looking at the photos. This picture of the fireplace area is, is interesting. Blood spatter on the ceiling, it looks like. You'd have thought that that would indicate that this was a very brutal attack. Like, like this person is angry, almost. I'd say it's energetic. Mm. It took some force, caused the blood to leave the skull, and reach up to the ceiling, far away as the blinds. It was done with some force. 
I'm no expert, but there's a significant amount of blood spatter on the ceiling. So not only does this obviously indicate that this was a, a very violent murder, what I'd like to understand is whether somebody who can just turn into a blind rage and commit this ferocious act of violence is actually somebody who has done this before. If Andres was guilty, we're talking about a man with no previous convictions of slight build. Would he be able to do this with just an insurance payout as the incentive? We return to the convictions of Diamantina and Andres and the potential miscarriage of justice. What's the recourse for Diamantina and Mascaro now? Is there any? Well, they're not entitled to a court-appointed attorney for habeas corpus. They have to hire somebody for that. Which meant that they would have to pay for any lawyer themselves, and we know that's not a possibility. They had the right to appeal. They got their appeal. They lost. The Court of Criminal Appeals took a look at it. They lost at that, that level. All they can do is hire somebody or find somebody to donate their time and effort to bring a habeas based on actual innocence. It was really interesting meeting Les because not only did I not know that he would be showing me the crime scene photos from the Colahaco murder, uh, but I certainly didn't expect the insight that he would have into whether Resendez could have committed this crime. Six blocks north of here is the murder scene for the case that I was representing him on, on habeas. By strange coincidence, the location of Claudia Benton's murder, that's the only crime for which Angel Resendez was actually convicted, was only six blocks from Les's home. The house is on the corner, and it's a little bit strikes closer to home. That could be my wife or our, our kids. Did that sh shock you when you first were brought onto the case and you realised that this murder had happened in your neighbourhood? Yes. When you're doing criminal defense work, you intellectually deal with the horrors of what you're dealing with by not letting it affect all aspects of your life. Well, I, I really appreciate it, your time and let me come and come and meet you and see everything. And I think it really adds adds something to the show. So I hope so. I, it really does, Les. I promise you. Like the doctor, you know, such a beauty and everything, and, mm. and she was killing babies and yeah. stuff like that. And Do you regret it? Um, sometimes I just do because I know their families really must be in pain when I have been able to experience some of those things in my family, you know. Uh, they were not murder or anything, but they were in accidents. As I was in the area, I was keen to visit the scene of the Benton murder. I'm there right now, I'm just pulling up outside. It's a brick-built house, and it's right on the corner of the road, and in fact, just over the road, as I was driving in, um, I could hear this sort of thundering noise, and I wound down the window and could hear the train just maybe 100 feet away from the house, so I'm, I'm outside it right now. And you can see, actually, some houses across the road here which back onto the railroad tracks. 
So I've just driven round the side of the house and I can see um, there's actually a vacant lot that's never been built on. I don't know why. And I can see the railroad track sort of um, slightly elevated from the from the road. It's only a few hundred feet from the house, but this is clearly where Resendez would have just jumped off, walked across the grass, and the first house he would have come to would have been the Bentons. As you know, it's been 15 years since I met Resendez, but I'd just seen photographs of a murder that I'd heard so much about, and now I was in the exact location of a murder we know he definitely did commit, and it was weird. It was also kind of ironic, I suppose, that the murder that Resendez would pay the ultimate price for was a few blocks away from the attorney that would try and save his life. Oh, hey, Jack, it's Alex. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> Hi. How are you? All right. I'm sorry it took you Don't, so much time. No, to get no me. worries at all. I've got your home number now, so I can stalk you. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I called Jack Levin again, the criminologist at Northeastern University in Boston that I'd spoken to in an earlier episode. Jack's just co authored a new book called The Allure of Premeditated Murder Why Some People Plan to Kill. And I wanted to know whether we could learn anything about Daryl Kolahako's killer from the state of the body that I'd just seen in the crime scene photos. I'm uh, glad that you called. No, I'm glad I got hold of you. I want to record our conversation for the podcast just because I have a question that's kind of cropped up as, as I've been investigating this. Okay. I am no expert, as you know, but one thing that struck me was the severity of the bludgeoning death that Daryl had succumbed to. Mm-hmm. Can we speculate, and obviously it's speculation, that this would be the work of somebody extremely angry and with some sort of grudge, or somebody that's even done this before, knowing that what we do know about Andres Mascaro, who is supposed to have been the killer, that he did it for the insurance money and that he didn't have any previous convictions? The brutality of the crime in Houston suggests that this was a repeat murder. Mm. You know, murders tend to get more and more brutal, more and more sadistic as the killer goes from one victim to another. Usually the first victim of a serial killer is not killed in a particularly brutal way. There is an overkill. But when you see overkill in a murder, you have to think that one of two things has happened. Either the killer has had a temper tantrum, has lost his cool to the extent that he is extremely angry. And that usually doesn't happen in a profit-motivated murder. Or the killer has killed many times before and now has increased the brutality at the crime scene, kind of the way that a drug addict would have to increase his intake of a psychotropic drug in order to get high. Mm. The same kind of, of escalation happens in the modus operandi of a serial killer. 
obviously Mascaro was found guilty. I mean, is it inconceivable that this could have been him? In other words, here's a guy with no previous convictions of slight build who apparently, according to the prosecution, who won the case, did it for an insurance payout. We know that there was no animosity, visible animosity, between Daryl Colahaco and Andres Mascaro. Is it conceivable that he could have done this and that there could have been overkill? It's not inconceivable, but it's unlikely. After all, it did go to court. There was a conviction. Mm. So there is evidence uh, to indicate that the defendant was guilty. Mm. If I had my money on one or the other, I would bet that Resendez was actually the killer here. As you know, Dead Man Talking wouldn't be possible without the generous help from our sponsors. You spend a third of your life under the sheet, so it's probably about time for a bedding upgrade. Founded in early 2014 by husband and wife Vicky and Rich Fullop, Brooklinen was designed to make five-star hotel-quality sheets more affordable and easy to order. And in just four years, it's grown to become the fastest-growing bedding brand in the world. My Brooklinen sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on, so it's probably time for you to upgrade too. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code DMT, dead man talking, at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters and towels come with a lifetime warranty. Now, the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use the promo code DMT at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen, these really are the best sheets ever. A quick message to let you know about another podcast we like called Uncover. On July the 8th, 1965, Canadian Pacific Flight 21 exploded in midair, killing all 52 people on board. Investigators determined a bomb brought down the passenger plane with four suspects at the top of their list, but no charges were ever laid. Uncover, bomb on board, examines that fateful day, the loved ones left behind, and the unanswered question, who put that bomb on the plane? Listen and subscribe to Uncover on Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you get Dead Man Talking. And are they giving you your drugs for your condition, medical conditions and things? There's two things. The little bit that um, you can blame it on insanity, but you can blame everything on insanity. Yeah. But I have uh, brain damage. Yeah. That you can blame anything else on it. Right, okay. You, and are you, you having drugs for that? For the, huh? Are you having drugs for that? Or? Not for that, but just, just so it won't get to the point that I really okay. need. Okay, you know? yeah. Yeah. I think at this point in my investigation, it's worth finding out a bit more about Resendiz himself and whether there's anything about his past that could help establish a link to the horrific murder of Daryl Colahaco. My name is Bruce Cohen. I am an associate professor of psychiatry uh, at University of Virginia. 
I spoke to Bruce in episode one of the Dead Man Talking podcast about Resendez's delusions. Bruce was asked by Resendez's attorney to evaluate him for insanity prior to his trial. Resendez had told me and Les Ribnick that he'd murdered Daryl because he made a pass at him, and I wanted to know if Bruce had heard any similar stories. My understanding is it was a pretty um, traumatic childhood, right? He remembered having been a witness when his grandmother assaulted his mother during her last trimester of pregnancy, and she went into preterm labor and the baby died a few hours after the birth. As well as spending time with Resendez before going to trial, Bruce spoke to his mother, brother and sister to corroborate what he'd been told. But he did talk about his uncle having uh, disciplined him with a belt when he was about nine years old. He had a lot of animals on the farm. Uh, but he did remember on one occasion his uncle beating a donkey of his on the head repeatedly with the flat side of a machete, which really frightened him. He himself was assaulted several times growing up. He remembered once that he'd been knocked unconscious by students at a protest. Apparently they targeted him because they knew that his father was in the military and that when his mother found him, he was unconscious and there was blood coming from his ears and his nose. As well as this horribly abusive upbringing, Bruce said that there was also a sexual component to the violence. He said he had witnessed his, not only the assaultive behavior of his grandmother towards his mother, but he witnessed his mother being raped when he was three or four years old at knife point by one of her boyfriends. She had lived with this man in her home for about nine months and she ultimately had forced him to leave when she no longer felt afraid of him. Basically, he came back and, and raped her at knife point. And Resendez himself was the victim of sexual abuse. He described having been molested twice at, uh, when he was about eight or eight to 10 years old by a man in his late teens and early 20s who lived nearby, uh, that he had been swimming nude in a stream and this man had jumped him and forced anal intercourse on him and warned him that if he told anyone about what had happened, he would be ridiculed. And he also described when he was living with other people homeless out on the beaches in Mexico and inhaling glue pretty heavily. And he said that in doing so, people could become so sedated and confused that they could easily be sexually victimized. He did tell me about some other incidents of forced a homosexual intercourse that occurred. Uh, there was one, for instance, when he was 14 or 15 years old, when he was hitchhiking between Mexico City and Monterey, when he had been assaulted by a truck driver. And what does that do? I mean, and obviously not everyone who's been abused like that becomes a serial killer. But in your experience, this sounds like a pretty profound amount of childhood trauma. This isn't just a, a father who, who used to, you know, smack him on the legs with a belt uh, profusely. This is a number of different things. In your experience, what can that level of childhood trauma do to somebody? Can that explain what he did? I don't think it would fully explain everything that he did. Like you said, there's a lot of people who are uh, victimized. And in fact, if you look at rapists or people arrested for child molestation, many of them do report a history of childhood sexual abuse, but uh, many people are abused and that's not sufficient in itself to explain their sexual behavior as adults. But it can certainly help shape the template of uh, what makes them feel powerful or what is sexually satisfying to them. The first time he sexually assaulted somebody or the first time he murdered somebody, it was for one reason. And then he may have continued the behavior because in some way the behavior itself becomes the purpose, that he finds it somehow gratifying or exciting to engage in these behaviors. And it may even ultimately become an addictive type behavior. And so the behavior may evolve over the course of his offenses. 
What do you remember anything about the people themselves, like the actual? Those, those they were homosexuals. They were. And also in California, so well, they, they were men. Huh? They were men. They were four men guys. Yeah. In California. Like me, Bruce had been told of additional murders that Resendiz claimed he'd committed, but which he'd not been convicted of. Five in total, in Houston, Florida, Georgia, and California. He recalled having killed a gay man in California who had been riding the train with him. And he said, he offered sex to me. At first, I said no to it. We got off the train, and I went to the restroom. I found another pipe, and he was going to get on a stopped train to sleep, and I just hit him in the head a bunch of times. And when I asked him why he felt the need to kill this man, he replied, because he was homosexual and wanted to have sex with me. At first, I went to the bathroom and didn't plan to kill him, but then the feeling just started when he came out. The Bible says homosexuals should be stoned to death, also that they won't make it into the kingdom of heaven. And I also asked him, well, do you believe that all homosexuals should be immediately killed? And he said, yes. So this is interesting. If what he said happened in California is true, it's very similar to what Resendez told me happened with Daryl Colahaco in Houston. And does it make his admissions more valid if he's told similar stories to numerous people? Based on your assessment of him, should I believe him? Um, we certainly know that Mr. Resendiz was a man who was capable of extraordinary violence. And we certainly know that he was a serial offender. Uh, and he wasn't trying to use this as any part of negotiation. So the question would be, what reason would he have uh, to confess to these to you? I, I don't see reason not to believe that there were further murders. I don't think, based on my experience with him, I could say how many murders. I think that goes beyond what I, as a psychiatrist, could conclude doing clinical interviews. But certainly based on his extensive record of severe violence and murder, I wouldn't see reason to believe that there couldn't be more. I've covered criminal justice for more than 15 years and I've looked into the cycle of violence that just because you have a violent childhood doesn't mean you'll become violent yourself. But most people convicted of violent crimes have had some kind of trauma in their early life. And I know that a lot of people that I've interviewed on death row and in prisons have had that traumatic childhood. It's no surprise that Bruce told me that Resendiz also suffered an abusive childhood, but perhaps the sexual component could explain why he would have attacked Daryl so savagely, if indeed he did at all. There are probably some people out there, like families of the victims, who the person has disappeared because you killed them and disposed of the body. Like as you said, the the alligators come very quickly if they're in the swamps, and um, that their 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 child or their their loved one is like a, a missing person, effectively. So there's no closure on the thing, and you know um, there's never going to be any closure because the police can't come and interview you anymore. So what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that if you can try and think about stuff like some of the the victims, then you know, maybe there can be some closure for the families. But do you not? How do you feel about that? I mean, do you think that that would be a good thing? I never them? tried to cover anything. No, I know, Even I know that. The, these things that I have remember yeah. is because um, 
I just don't want nobody waiting for somebody that's never going to come back. Yeah. But I don't want to make somebody feel good when everything's real bad for right. them, you know. Right. So I find myself at a crossroads. Over the series, I've become pretty convinced by the circumstantial evidence linking Resendez to Daryl Colahaco's murder. But would it hold up in court? What would a jury make of it? What would an attorney looking at what I'd found make of it? Particularly if we could turn back time and both Diamantina and Andres had only just been charged with Daryl's murder. And what about Blythe, that sleepy backstop in California where Resendez told me he'd killed up to four people? If he'd told the authorities those specifics 15 years ago, would they have found missing people? Would they have even found the bodies of his victims? These are things that I'll maybe never know. But what about the things I do know? What if Resendez had led police to his victims' remains in another case? What if there was precedent? Would this affect the way I felt about the Blythe case? In the next Dead Man Talking podcast, you're going to find out. Dead Man Talking is a production of DMT Media and Audio Boom. The show is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our intern and production assistant is Connor Tolony, and our theme song is The Railroad by the band Goodnight Texas. You can check them out at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Talking where you can follow developments, get involved and share your thoughts. We're also tweeting at Deadman Podcast and you can email us at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. <laughs>